Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo, and I'm thrilled to be joined again by my friend, Fraser Rice. Fraser has appeared on the pod several times. You can check out our episodes on James Bond most recently. I believe we did No Time to Die, which I loved, and which you, Fraser, were lukewarm about. Fair assessment. Yeah, no, I, I, I it has not grown on me yet. <laughs> I, I like certain parts of it, and like most things, I like certain scenes, but went down the rabbit hole on that, and then I definitely got over-trailered with that movie, mm. so I knew a lot about it before I went into it, which is a symptom of the new Halloween movies, too, which we're going to talk about. Okay. Uh, so i got to do better as a movie consumer to hide from the internet going forward. Oh, I like that. You take your you take your, your part and your role and your responsibility in things that maybe you didn't necessarily appreciate all the way through. I like that. And we also did a great episode about what I believe we mutually agree upon is an excellent and vastly underappreciated Bond film on Her Majesty's Secret Service, starring the man who might have been a Bond for the ages, a man who I believe could have rivaled Connery, uh, Bond Refusenik George Lazenby. That movie, that one gets much better with age for me. And we talk a lot about what might have been with Lazenby. And uh, I don't know, it it just looms large as something that stands up well on its own. Uh, It gets name checked and referenced a lot in No Time to Die. Uh, And it just, it could have been great uh, to have him in future episodes or future movies. Fraser can be found on Twitter at Fraser Rice. That's where he does most of his social mediaing. That's the best place to get more Fraser content and counter all of his various enthusiasms, which range from financial planning to comic books, horror films, most notably the Halloween franchise, which brings him here today in this very special post-Halloween themed episode of the Pod. Fraser, welcome. You've been after me for years, literally, to do Halloween specifically, horror more generally, as you know. It's not my particularly favorite genre, so I'm a bit of a of a genre refusenik when it comes to these films, but I had a great time investigating and watching Halloween and checking it all out, so welcome again to the podcast. Thank you, and, and this is a real treat for me. It's always fun to be on the show, but in this particular case, uh, you know, this is it's like buying IBM. You'll never be fired for it. Uh, the... <laughs> Halloween is really considered to be best in class on lots of different levels. So I'm interested in your opinion, even though horror is not your thing, to see what you think about it. And and also, uh, just to sort of look at the whole pastiche of John Carpenter's work. And I know mm. you like the thing and, and other components of it. Yes. Uh, this will be really fun. Okay, let's start by taking a quick look and listen to the iconic... Halloween trailer. The only, the The classic classic Halloween. Halloween night. A small American town. Fifteen years ago. Michael? Halloween. I spent eight years trying to reach him. 
and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. I think he'll come back. Exploring uncharted territory. And totally charted. Just talk. Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. The only reason she babysits is to have a Less of a trailer, Frazier, and more of just a total snippet of the film, I guess. But you get the general idea, uh, listeners and viewers. I was going to say, they, uh, they, it's more of a music video than anything else. It doesn't really tell you what's going on. Well, it's hard probably to cut, I guess, in 1978. Well, we, when we talk about the release, we'll get to some of those things, because the, the whole story of the film is kind of fascinating. Let's start with kind of the state of horror uh, at the time in 1978 when Halloween was released in October of 1978, of course, and also sort of some general pop culture stuff and other films that were going on. I mean, I just from is the state of the union horror wise, it's, it's tough to go back and remember because the Halloween really, if it didn't define certain tropes, it certainly solidified them for the general public. Uh, if you kind of go back and sort of think about the, the horror movies that uh, really that were in people's consciousness at the time of release, you'd go back to Psycho, Rosemary's Baby, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Exorcist, Night of the Living Dead, and then Black Christmas. To me, those sort of formed the American horror psyche to the extent anybody really cared about it. And then Jaws uh, had come out recently, and so you had this sort of uh, trundling of animal-based horror movies. So against that backdrop, you have uh, Halloween, which sort of slides in and has a nice glide path in terms of uh, a sort of popular acceptance. People were ready for it. And the other kind of neat thing, and we'll get into this too, John Carpenter had lots of things going on, uh, not much budget uh, at all. Uh, he had talent, which came from Dark Star and then Assault on Precinct 13, which was a really cool thing. Um, and then he had this background in the Italian Giallo movies, which the U.S. audience didn't really have much experience in. And then all of these different horror tropes, the final girl, the synthesizer aligned with the killer, the point of view uh, component of the killer in the first scene, that wasn't really well uh, understood by the larger American viewing audience. So against that backdrop and against Halloween, you get what was, I think, Carpenter would agree with me on this, that the uh, he was out to make an exploitation movie. Uh, he was out to make a horror movie. He wasn't trying to make Citizen Kane. He was just trying to get from A to Z and create something that could be uh, digested and was really well received. Add on to that obvious talent, and you get this thing that is now, you know, a consensus top five horror movie of all time. So in 1978 alone, you had films like Damien Omen 2, and Piranha, the Joe Dante film, you had a lot of exploitation films, as you mentioned. I think horror at the time, outside a few outlier kind of quote-unquote artistic films like Suspiria, Dario Gento's film, which was, I think, 1976, really horror, in quotes, was, it was, you know, gore. It was really a niche uh, kind of film-going experience, I think. And of course, the two probably largest counterpoints to that would be Hitchcock with The Birds. 
And of course, Psycho, which Carpenter cites as the granddaddy, quote, end quote, of these types of films. He talks in one of the making of featurettes that it was Psycho, which took horror out of, or, or the birds in Psycho, which took horror out of kind of European castles and Gothic locations and period-specific stuff and into our everyday life. That That's kind of the environment in which it came. And if you look at what was successful in 1978, of course, the big 800-pound film would be Star Wars. Grease was a huge success. Animal House, Close Encounters, Every Which Way But Loose, the Clint Eastwood orangutan movie. Jaws <laughs> 2, which still made $77 million, just proving how strong Jaws was. Saturday Night Fever, Superman, uh, Damien Omen 2, as I mentioned, is one of the top 10 or top 11 grossing films of that year. Uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which I guess is more of a sci-fi film. I wouldn't call that a horror particularly. And, in, and a remake, too. And, in, and a remake, too. And in popular music, you had uh, the soundtrack to Saturday Night Fever was huge. Paul McCartney and Wings were really big. Uh, the Commodores had Three Times a Lady. People at night watching TV were watching things like Happy Days, Little House on the Prairie, uh, Charlie's Angels, Quincy, and The Rockford Files, my personal favorite. So that's kind of the way the situation was set in 1978. And as you mentioned, Carpenter, after uh, his first film was Dark Star in 1974, which is a science fiction comedy co-written with future alien screenwriter Dan O'Bannon. And Dark Star is kind of an interesting curiosity. I think I watched it when Bruce and I did Alien on the Pod. Um, and a lot of the alien stuff, I guess, kind of made its way. I'm sorry, a lot of the Dark Star stuff made its way into Alien uh, through Dan O'Bannon later. So that was his first film. And then he made Assault on Precinct 13, which was really kind of one of those, I don't know if I'd call it an exploitation film, but it's certainly a genre film. And it's a weird one, too, because it's really Rio Bravo uh, mixed in right. with Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> and, uh, and and you sort of look at it and say, you know, it's really an action movie, less a horror movie. Wait, when did Night of the Living Dead come out? Uh, uh, 68. Oh, 68? Jeez. Yeah, black and white. Okay, yeah, Dawn, of first, first, Dawn of yeah, the Dead. Dawn of the Dead came out in 79. Uh, actor to sort of lead a movie like that too. Lots of great stuff going on in it. Uh, but it has that sort of zombie apocalypse feel that these folks are stuck in a house and mm. uh, and he borrowed heavily from that I think. Yeah, I mean I, I just watched Assault on Precinct 13 in preparation for this. I think it's such a great premise for a movie. As you mentioned it has a, a black protagonist. It has a couple primary female protagonists. All presented very matter-of-factly by the way, which I think is pretty much ahead of its time. I would say the premise of Assault on Precinct 13 creates a little more opportunity for character and tension than the premise of Halloween, because Halloween is really a single premise. There's a single threat, whereas the Assault on Precinct 13 setup is so diabolically clever that you have tension within our protagonists and antagonists, and you have a lot more going on. I was surprised to hear that Halloween is, of course, a low-budget film. It was made for $300,000, which is such a low amount of money at the time that the producer, Erwin Yablons, told Carpenter, if you can do this for three hundred dollars you can have your name above the title, you can have Final Cut, you can have whatever the hell you want. Just bring it in <laughs> at three hundred, dollars which he did. 
Assault on Precinct 13 was made for $100,000. Now, to my eye, I don't know if you've seen this recently, it's actually kind of a better looking film than Halloween in a way. And I'm not sure if it's just the genre because, you know, whereas Halloween has its own specific set of sort of filmmaking tendencies, which we'll talk about, Assault on Precinct 13 almost looks like the more expensive movie than Halloween, even though it was made for a third of the money, which is kind of interesting if people check it out. No question about it. And it, it's, it's worth watching on its own for three big reasons. First one is the opening theme sort of gives you an idea of how good Carpenter is as a musician and score writer. Mm-hmm. Part two, you get to see the film knob twirling and mm. skill that he brings to a project sure. with no money to it. And you also, there's a famous scene, which I texted you about, oh my God. Uh, where I almost shudder to even talk about it, but a little girl Brutal. Uh, meets an untimely demise <laughs> in it. Uh, and that lets you know that this guy means business and he is not <laughs> afraid to shock. And you wouldn't know it at the time really watching the movie. Revisionist history really sort of informs sort of seeing where the skill lies on this stuff. But he really, in that one, you can see where the different cues are from everything from Halloween to The Thing to a bunch of the rest of the movies he's come out with. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting historical document, I guess, if you're sort of a carpenter mm-hmm. completist. Now, also, the girl that gets killed in front of the uh, ice cream, you texted me the infamous line of dialogue, I wanted vanilla swirl. And she goes back to the ice cream truck, which is when she gets shot by one of the gang protagonists. Um, That's Kim Richards. And for FCAC Filmic Universe completists, Kim Richards was also in our episode on Escape from Witch Mountain, the Disney classic. She's one of the two children, the two alien children, uh, in that film. So that ties in there. And also, I believe Donald Pleasance is in that as well. Uh, as a I, In Halloween, I think Kyle Richards. Kyle's Richard. What did I say? Kim, what did I say? Uh, Kim, Kim Richards? I think the sister was in Assault Kim, Precinct Kyle. 13, and Kyle is in Halloween. So it, it's <laughs> okay. a real housewife. Uh, okay, Kim, Kyle. Yes, too. I get confused as to which ones are which. But yeah, one of those Richards girls was in there. Now, you mentioned <laughs> the score to Precinct 13. I just want to play a little of that because I have it queued up here. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Here's coming a little bit of it here. It's got that same percussive quality that the Halloween theme will have. We'll play that in a moment. His music is so simple, but it builds upon itself. And it accumulates a narrative power that always goes so hand in hand with his filmmaking. Film score nerds are heavily into John Carpenter's scores. This high-pitched thing gives you this urban terror feel to the events that are going to unfold in Assault on Precinct 13. I mean, it's it's a stunning, stunning score. So that's that's brilliant. That's another great reason to watch Assault on Precinct 13. Now, I haven't seen the Ethan Hawke remake. I'm just going to assume that's probably not worth seeing. I haven't seen it either. <laughs> I, uh, life, life is only Life is so only long. so long. That's true. Okay. Oh, so I also wanted to mention the star of Precinct 13 actually just died on October 7th. 
at age wow. 92, Austin Stoker. Great actor. Haven't really seen him. I have to look for him. I have to look at his IMDb page a little bit more. Um, I thought he was so good. And what I really like about the screenplay is there are all these kind of character things that are kind of hinted at and not always paid off in a way that feels cool. Um, there's some some things to do with the lieutenant's kind of background as he gets assigned to this to-be-closed precinct. And there's just some brief moments that kind of show Carpenter's eye for character and detail uh, within this genre. And I think uh, that that's something that's just really cool and unique about his uh, his filmmaking style. So after Assault on Precinct 13 did pretty well, and it got some attention in Europe, which appreciated this type of genre picture maybe a bit more than American critics did, and certainly returning an investment on the $100,000 investment made by uh, the producer, Erwin Yablons, and his partner, Joe Wolf, who I've, if you played a little of the making of feature ad, I'm going to play a little of that later, but Joe Wolf has one of the great voices in film executive history. Um, and it sounds exactly like the kind of guy that you would think would put together low-budget genre pictures and probably carries a gun. So after the success of Precinct 13, Yablons was thinking of a hollow of a of a horror picture, and he had the idea to set it on Halloween. And he went to John Carpenter, who had done a great job at a lower price point, and pitched him on the concept of making this film. Here's a little sound from Yablons talking about how it came together with John Carpenter at one of the iconic restaurants in Los Angeles. I want to do a horror film. So I started to think about how to do this for the limited amount of money we had. And it occurred to me that if we did a movie about babysitters, it would work because everybody had either been a baby, uh, babysitter or been a baby. And also I thought it would be something that would lend itself to kids in jeopardy. One night would be the best way to do it. Halloween just popped into my mind. And I thought to myself, gee, wouldn't that be great? But I'll bet somebody's done it, you know. The title's been used. Uh, someone's made a picture called Halloween. And then the magical thing that I learned, the word Halloween, and as much as we could research, not only had not been used, but even the word had not been used as part of another title in the history of the movie business. Now, that's, that's an interesting thing. Irwin said, let's make a horror film about babysitters who are stalked by this psychotic killer. And John got really excited. I met with him the next day at the Hamburger Hamlet. We had a tuna fish sandwich together, <laughs> and I explained it to him. So over tuna fish at the Hamburger Hamlet is born Halloween. <laughs> and one interesting thing, too, is that is when they went to Europe with Assault on Precinct 13, uh, Carpenter had a, got a couple of things that were important. Number one, Nancy Loomis and Charles Cyphers uh, and, uh, ended up in Halloween. Uh, mm, Cyphers right. is the sheriff. Yes. And, um, uh, Nancy Loomis, who became Annie Brackett, which was a, a big deal. Um, she's terrific in the movie. And then he also met the distributor in England, whose name was Michael Myers. Right. And that ultimately turned out to be uh, a pretty formative experience, I guess, of the history of the franchise. Now, it's kind of funny because in this making of featurette from 2003, must have been a DVD release on one of the Halloween films. Carpenter says that it was a tribute to Michael Myers that he named this character after him. But it's sort of... I don't know if that's revisionist history or what, because 
naming, you know, one of the most famous psychopathic killers in film history after your former distributor. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's the way, maybe that's a compliment in Hollywood, but <laughs> hope so. <laughs> uh, that's how it went down. So from that, uh, then they went and they had a $300,000 budget. Uh, and I saw you tweeted recently. So this, this is the depth of your Halloween knowledge. You tweeted something about, I think you tweeted something about like uh, the, the subsequent to this three film sequel series, which just came out. I don't want to get in the weeds. I'm cautioning you much like I did my guest Dan Hartley on the star Wars episode that Bruce and I did. I was like, don't get me in the weeds here on fandom, but I believe this three film cycle of sequels, which just was completed. I think I saw you tweet something about the Akkads, who are the children of Mustafa Akkad, who was the guy who put the money up for the original Halloween. Are you are you invested or involved in all of the intricacies of the relationships of the the producers here? Yeah, so I think what you're referencing, I put up a chart, which looks like a sentence diagram from a multi-clause thing you'd find in a law review that shows all the potential sequences of the different iterations of the movie, of which there are now, I think, 12, one of which is Halloween 3, which is completely unrelated to Michael Myers. And it's so complicated and convoluted that it, it's, it, instead of the Columbo cinematic universe, you could have the Halloween cinematic mm. universe. And it has its own different dimensions and multiverses to it at this point. Uh, and that's just a vestige of, uh, I think, the Akkads and all the different money players seeing, okay, we're going to go in one direction, which they did for two movies. Then they wanted to go anthology-wise. Halloween 3 didn't involve Michael Myers. Mass disappointment. So then they went back to the Michael Myers well for three movies. That ended up being uh, a production nightmare. Then they had to pay, they hit the pause button for a long time and brought Jamie Lee Curtis back and then went down a certain way. Then they decided to reboot them and brought Rob Zombie in to do Halloween 1 and 2 again. And then that didn't work out so well with the fans. So then they went back and got David Gordon Green, cut out Halloween 2 going back originally, and just had these three movies end up being the sequel to the first one. So it's a it's a complete roadmap of London, I guess, where you just get lost and you, you, you kind of pick out the parts that you like. Well, now now I'm more interested in that because I, in doing the reading, I realized, and I, and I think uh, David Gordon Green mentioned that the reason there are certain story choices made across however many Halloween films there have been often has a lot to do with the fact that there are different production entities that had the rights to the franchise at different times. So right. there are certain storylines that you cannot touch or even reference if you're making a a cod produced Hollywood, I'm sorry, a Halloween film as opposed to, you know, maybe a Dino De Laurentiis lineage produced Halloween film because there's also this interesting thing where, and this is more more ammunition for my eventual Dino De Laurentiis episode because he keeps coming up in every episode. Um, apparently, after the success of Halloween, which was if if it's not the most successful independent film of all time, it's certainly in the top three, made for three hundred thousand, and I think grossed over seventy million dollars, uh, maybe by the mid eighties. It's probably made even more to this day. But then Dino De Laurentiis came in and sensed an opportunity and purchased the sequel rights. 
So right. to some degree, Yablons, Carpenter, Joe Wolf uh, received their profits up front from Dino De Laurentiis for the sequel. And then I'm not sure what happened to the rights picture then. So that's kind of a convoluted business thing that's gone on with IP like this. But I get the sense that certainly Carpenter and Yablons and Joe Wolf have always been paid for every iteration, whether they were involved or producing them or not. So that's kind yeah, of... I, I, I think you're right about that. And so then you get into the you know, use of characters versus use of storylines versus you know when the rights revert back to the owners, that mm. type of thing. All of that, I think, is this big soup uh, that, that goes into the directions that the, that the franchise has gone. And, and then you bring onto it uh, you know, they get started making these things, and then I, I think you have this sort of fanboy culture on the outside that causes the scripts to get changed a quarter of the way through, halfway through, and then even causing reshoots at the end of it. Uh, so it's not like you have this very strict organizing principle at the beginning, like you might suspect if John Carpenter maintained his interest all the way through he really kind of stopped after the first one and it's and it's been storyline by metastasis ever since <laughs> well it's also interesting at the time thinking about you know making fun of jaws 2 on that list in 1978 and obviously the first star wars film so empire strikes back hasn't hasn't occurred yet and really the idea of franchises with multiple sequels is really not a thing at the time that Halloween comes out. So I guess you can understand why if Dino De Laurentiis is approaching you and saying, hey, that was great. Uh, how about I pay you guys a million dollars and you can get your million dollars right now and let me make the second film. I can imagine how they probably assumed that was uh, an advantageous piece of business. So the other thing that happened when uh, Yablons approached Carpenter, who was 29 at the time that he made this film, uh, was, we have to mention Deborah Hill because big fan of her legendary producer, legendary champion of, of women in filmmaking. Uh, she first worked with Carpenter in 1975 as the script supervisor and assistant editor on Assault for Precinct 13. And she also co-wrote four additional uh, Carpenter films, including Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York, Escape from L.A., they wrote and produced Halloween 2 together, which Carpenter did not direct. Um, an amazing person. And she uh, went on to, uh, she had a personal relationship with Carpenter, but continued to work with him on the other end of that. Uh, they produced a remake of The Fog in 2005. And she was working on the Oliver Stone film World Trade Center when she died of cancer in 2005. Of Deborah Hill, after her death, Carpenter told the Associated Press that working with her was, quote, one of the greatest experiences of my life. She had a passion for not just movies about women or women's ideas, but films for everybody. She's a huge, huge part of John Carpenter's career. She's a huge, huge part of film history. And certainly here is where I would say she started to make her bones. So shout out to Deborah Hill. No question about it. Now, I want to talk about the movie a little bit. My uh, take on watching this you know, I'm a big advocate for going to the theater these days, as that's a rapidly declining piece of business. I was a big fan of uh, Top Gun Maverick for the reason that it, it really necessitated people going to a, a theater to see it and proved the business of doing that outside the Marvel Universe, which is important to me. 
Interestingly, with this film, I found it almost impossible to watch uh, the way I would watch something for the podcast, which is, to be honest, usually going to be on my laptop. Uh, or even at home, you really have to be in a darkened theater to have this film truly come alive. It's so dark that if you're not in a completely blacked out environment, it's very hard to notice the nuances and the subtlety of the filmmaking. I'm not saying this as a criticism. I'm saying this as something I really appreciate about the film. Uh, because if you're going to watch it at home, you really need to turn off all the lights and be in this spooky, ready-to-be-frightened environment to have the subtlety of the the cinematography with which they shoot Michael Myers uh, to really come alive. So I thought that was pretty impressive, although it does make it a little bit difficult to watch the way people, unfortunately, tend to watch things now, which is like on your computer or phone. So it's sort of an interesting byproduct of that comment is I I was my first experience watching it was on TV I was four years old when it came out so that even my parents were pretty intrepid but not that intrepid in terms of <laughs> opening my eyes to the ways of the world uh, I only saw it in a theater very late and it is amazing how rich John Carpenter's movie making is and how great a use of peripheral vision mm-hmm. and weird details uh, are a major focus of how he gets things involved and things that are framed outside of your mm-hmm. sort of normal experience uh, and also deep into the perspective of the shot. And that creates, I think, a very subtle, um, unnerving feel throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is not uh, sort of uh, spoiling it for people. Strangely, they, much like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which you wouldn't think this either, there's not a lot of blood or gore mm-hmm. in this. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, all of the lack of um, the, the unnervingness to it and the use of lighting, the use of this inevitable force coming at you from a long way away, and you're looking at the movie screen going, oh, my God, you've got to do something <laughs> and change it. That, I think, is a little bit different than, uh, than a typical horror movie. And I think a, a leap forward uh, that Carpenter really imprinted on the, uh, on the genre. Yeah, I kept, when I was watching it this time, um, I had much the same reaction. I kept thinking, is there a famous skit or sketch of uh, Mike Meyer, Michael Myers showing up everywhere the way he does in the first part of the film where Jimmy Lee Curtis sees him standing across the street from her high school, uh, standing next to a hedge in her, her Midwest uh, street? Like that, that kind of creepy way that he's both very visible in daylight is so counterintuitive to what you think of when you think about a horror movie or when I think even what I was thinking I was going to see here. Uh, You do see Mike Myers very, very clearly in the beginning part of the film in daylight. And then when it becomes nighttime, he disappears and he's in the background. He's in the shadows. To your point, he enters frames. It's almost as if you become trained by John Carpenter to understand that if a character is canted to the right or to the left of the frame and there's a great deal of space, well, you pretty much know who's going to show up uh, in that space, if not just because of a musical cue, which, as you mentioned before, I think Carpenter also sort of pioneered in a great way. So, yeah, the filmmaking is is really impressive, and it's totally different than what I expected. I mean, I haven't seen this movie in 25 or 30 years. I thought it was going to be much gorier. It hardly has any kills per se. I mean, it has three or four or five of them, but they're not right. gory at all. 
Um, nope. That's not where the that's not where the fear comes. I think Deborah Hill says, you know, we weren't trying to make a disgusting film; we were trying to make a scary film. And to that end, you know, I think some of those other films, the giallos, the the genre exploitation films, are going for that. Right? They're going for sort of this almost comic, over the top. Uh, kind of kung fu movie style violence that really isn't scary when you when you get right down to it whereas this is genuinely frightening yeah i, I good horror movies to me have a little twinge of comedy in there and the gore is is part of the uh, the the, mm-hmm. the meat <laughs> pardon the pun that that the fans like to get and halloween had different carpenter had a different take on it going to it and it, it also if you go back remember this is pre friday the 13th by three years mm-hmm. this is also in some ways right after stephen king's carrie came out which i think came out yeah. in 76 so you have sort of an absence of stephen king mm-hmm. and the supernatural um, Wes Craven just came out with The Hills Have Eyes, which is way over the top, mm-hmm. um, and, but not well-known by the broader U.S. audience. Mm-hmm. So there are so many weird components of this that I don't think were calculated, but but that Carpenter really, he, he fit skill, niche, subtlety, sound, uh, use of darkness mm-hmm. and composition it's just so well to create a mood and and that's why it holds up so well in my opinion and uh you know i i also like halloween 2 which he had very little to do with and it, it goes it takes the components of halloween and goes straight for the jugular with mm. the tropes and ramps it up to 11 so it's a very different movie probably a lot more a lot less pleasing uh, for some folks, but I like it probably because I saw it at a formative age too. Um, but boy, it, it really, Halloween though, it, it when you sort of sit right back and look at it, it, it takes its time. It develops the characters. I think you feel an affection for not only Laurie, but, um, uh, but also Annie Brackett, who mm-hmm. I think I think steals the movie in many ways. I, I think I, I feel a kinship toward her mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and you, you're invested in it. You're invested in what happens to these people so that when, you know, the, the 20 minute end shot happens, uh, when Lori's trying to get away, I mean, you're, you're rooting for, you haven't quite gotten to the point where you're rooting for Michael Myers yet, which often <laughs> happens in the horror community. You root for the villains and all that mm-hmm. stuff. And then you have, you know, kind of a, a great, uh, over the top comic relief ish Captain Ahab, uh, Donald Pleasance uh, <laughs> as Dr. Loomis and all of it. It's a, it's a, in many ways a miraculous mixture of things to create sort of this movie that uh, that that spawned twelve uh, sequels and uh, also it, it it just has an imprint that that is borrowed by everybody. Well, to your point, here are two of my favorite people talking about Halloween at the time. Okay, that's Halloween, a horror movie we both think is pretty good. Very good. One of the things a short scene can't show you is that Halloween is directed and acted with a great deal more artistry and craftsmanship than the sleazebucket movies we've been talking about. But there's another much more important difference. As you watch Halloween, your basic sympathies are always enlisted on the side of the woman, not with the killer. Mm -hmm. The movie develops its women characters as independent, intelligent, 
spunky and interesting people. Halloween does not hate women. Yeah, you know, when I saw that scene, I must admit, I wasn't really worrying about the woman as much as I was placing myself in that closet and thinking about that killer, how I would handle it. Uh -huh. And I was also appreciating the fact that I think Halloween not only doesn't hate women, mm -hmm. but it loves film and filmmaking. That music is just fabulous. The way he starts one theme and lays another thing on top of it, keeping the other theme, really good. Uh, also, the light coming through the slats in that closet. Mm -hmm. This is a film that's sort of up. That scene is up and you're jumpy rather than getting depressed and feeling sorry mm -hmm. and feeling sorry that you're even watching it. An upbeat thing. You know, I think what you're touching on here is that artistry can redeem any subject matter. Sure. That's why I've always been opposed to censorship. I don't mm -hmm. believe any subject matter should be off base. Right. The question is, what does the artist do with it? How does he look at it? How does he put it through his art in order to make a statement about it or to make it into either a commercial film or a serious film? I believe that in the case of a movie like Halloween, we can engage in that joy of filmmaking that you talk about. That's not the case with the other films that really address themselves to the lowest possible common denominator. So we're not knocking scary pictures, no. per se, just a certain kind. It's incredible uh, to hear Siskel and Ebert talk so eruditely about Halloween and about the genre pictures and so grateful to have lived in a time where that was appointment television viewing uh, oh, in, in the 70s, in the 80s, you know, when, when watching a smart show about movies like that was just regular part of our culture. But he's saying exactly what you were just saying, which I think is such a important part about uh, the film, because uh, of course, you know, much has been written and said about slasher films, horror films, depictions of women, treatments of women. It's an issue. It's a thing. I think that's an interesting take on it that uh, Roger Ebert was putting forth there. And it's funny, too, because Roger Ebert has very little positive to say about the horror genre at all. Siskel <laughs> uh, it, it, it as well. And uh, yeah. I, to the point where, you know, sometimes you have to be careful in terms of receiving opinions from people who, you know, just walk in hating the mm -hmm. genre and it's a tough thing mm -hmm. to overcome. I'd be like, oh, Frage, why don't you go and review a rom-com movie? Mm -hmm. I'm like, eh, it's not my thing. It's not quite mm -hmm. what, you know, I, I can try to appreciate this or that, but I, I'm not walking into it with the right frame of mind or maybe an appreciation for the weird subtleties of that particular art form that are pleasing and maybe signal intelligence. So it, for those against that backdrop, those two guys agreeing that Halloween is a terrific movie should tell you that there is a type of uh, uh, artisanal quality to mm -hmm. it and intelligence behind what's going on that even that even they're able able to appreciate. Um, and, and and again, this is a simple story. It's not like, yeah. as I said, John Carpenter wasn't trying to make Citizen Kane here. Uh, he he was trying to get from A to B and scare the audience and. Uh, in doing so and in keeping it simple, he ended up doing something a lot more. Well, I think in to speak a little bit to the opposite side of the Ebert opinion there, which I probably, I, I definitely I think Ebert and Siskel were right on as regards this film. And obviously we've talked on the pod before about, you know, artistic horror films like The Shining, uh, which to me have an, have the, have the layer of a inquisitive and, uh, specifically minded directorial vision, which elevates the subject material. Same is true, I think, in Carrie, uh, which as a piece of filmmaking is far beyond sort of what Halloween is, not to, not to compare the two per se, but I mean, what De Palma is doing in Carrie has more in common, I think, with what Kubrick was doing with The Shining, whereas 
John Carpenter at this very young stage of his career was onto something and developing something, which I think he would then really start to have full command of uh, once we get to the thing. And I think 1980, but to speak to the opposite of what Ebert was saying, I mean, my, my issue in, in sort of the, the, the shorthand that we've often bantered about that I'm, you know, I'm not a horror guy is that far too often those things that I think someone like Siskel and Ebert really appreciate in a film, which is acting and storytelling and writing and filmmaking, you know, a lot of times that's not what's front and center. And even in here, you know, the acting here is not even at the level of say assault on precinct 13, for example, um, yep, I'd agree. or it's, you know, it's not really at the level of Carrie for that matter. Um, it's just different. Now, the artistry that is apparent here in the way that these guys were talking about and the way that we've mentioned here is absolutely there. But I think that's where sort of the thing comes from, is that if you got into movies because you liked to be moved, uh, horror and comic book movies and things of that sort probably eluded you and continue to elude you as they do me most of the time. Um, I'd add on to that to you know it, it, good comparisons with uh, Shining and Carrie. Uh, I find Halloween to be scarier and more titillating and and appealing to more based natures. Mm-hmm. And so a horror movie that is artistic that forgets to do those two things uh, fails, in my mm-hmm. opinion. And now I'm not saying Shining or Carrie fails. I think they just don't quite get to that base level of uh, uh, emotional elicitation that Halloween tries to do. I, I think Shining, I don't find Shining to be that scary. What? I find it to be unnerving. Oh I find God. it to be, uh, I find it to be great filmmaking, but I'm not terrified by it. Uh, and then Carrie, I think is somewhere in between and a great character study mm-hmm. with, with a fabulous end, um, but not, it, it, again, unnerving, not scary. It's just hmm. a different type of a different type of dread that those two movies bring out. Halloween, I think, does a little bit better job of uh, uh, bringing it. Uh, real life isn't quite the word I bring it, but allows the audience member to really sort of superimpose their own yeah. existence onto it a little bit better. Yeah, I mean, you're probably not going to go spend the winter in an abandoned hotel. Um, and, you know, have paranormal activity going on around you like in The Shining. But I guess you're right. I mean, The Shining is, I've always said on the podcast, it's a it's a film I have the utmost appreciation for that I don't really want to watch again because the experience of watching it is not enjoyable. It's so terrifying, horrifying. It's psychologically distressing that the you're right. It doesn't con- it doesn't contain the sort of jump scare fear aspect that a film like this does. But it's to me because the acting and the writing and the filmmaking is is at the highest possible level of the medium. It is so much more affecting because all of the aspects of filmmaking are being used to induce a state in the viewer that is completely within the control of a director like Kubrick. And to me, that is so much more horrifying than a movie like this, which is I can watch these movies and not genuinely be scared until, um, as I said before, the uh, what's the what's the one that kicked off the sort of VHS found footage 
thing that came out in the early 2000s. Um, uh, Paranormal Activity, Blair no, Witch Blair Project. Witch. Blair Witch Project was the first film I can remember seeing outside of The Shining that scared the shit out of me in the theater. And I'll, I'm going to give a, I have a, a comment on that. And that is basically, if you were to draw a chart to sort of show how that movie is built up, both of them have very slow mm-hmm. first halves of the movie as they develop what's going on. And they they slowly escalate, 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 escalate. And then they go parabolic yeah. right at the end. Exactly. And so I think maybe that's just, that's, that's what you look to. Mm-hmm. Halloween has sort of unnerving, crazy mm-hmm. first part. And then jump scares, jump, you know, it's, it looks more like a heart or an EKG in terms <laughs> of, uh, you know, where the scares come in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's part of the formula. Yeah. The, you know, and then Carrie, um, Carrie's probably the same way as the, as Blair Witch and Shining, if I think about it. You know, yeah. most of the, it, it is a slow burn right mm-hmm. up until the end. And then, and then it wallops you with, with mayhem. Um, the the typical slashers, you know, they have formulas too that they go to, and Halloween was really good in terms of sort of establishing that footprint for future uh, future franchises to sort of sit their shoulder on their shoulders. Um, that it, you know, you, you've got to get you've got to get the younger audience involved fast, and then you got to get them titillated. You've got to get them invested, and then you've got to get them scared and and poke the bear often uh in order to keep their interest going uh mm. it's a, it's the daring horror movie um that that is willing to really take its time like that um yeah and i'd say i'd say even halloween it, it i mean it has its moments during the movie that are very scary and so on but it's a slow burn mm-hmm. too until the last until sure. really until the third act yeah now the other thing I wanted to mention that you brought up that a great horror movie should have a sense of humor should have a bit of fun in it much like some of those kung fu movies that I think we grew up watching as well. I agree with you when we played that little snippet about uh Erwin Yablon's talking about the origin of the film you could hear that there were some scenes of trick or treating but they're all daytime scenes. And I thought it was such a missed opportunity watching the film this time that we didn't have any nighttime trick or treating. Uh, which I think is what everyone associates with trick-or-treating, or at least certainly that's what I associate with trick-or-treating, is that it takes place at night, not in the day. And that that would have been a perfect opportunity to put Michael Myers in a bit of a humorous situation, but maybe that would have been a little too against the overall tone of the film. Like, you could have had him trick-or-treating and getting some candy and people thinking he's in costume, but maybe that just would have taken us out. I kept thinking that would that scene work in this film, but maybe not because of the tone that you're talking about. Well, I I hate to break it to you. Uh, Don't tell Mr. me they Silo. do it in a sequel. Uh, Halloween two <laughs> takes place one minute one minute after the end of Halloween one, and a lot of those things that you're looking oh, for okay. happen in that one. Uh, okay. And, uh, oh, so he's been shot seven times, but he goes trick or treating. No, it, it, it's it's worse than that. Uh, you know, this is not my way of using subterfuge to get you to watch more Halloween. Uh, I'm probably not going to watch Halloween too, so I don't think you have to worry about spoiling it. It came out in what 1979 or 80, so. No, it came out in 81, and it was funny because uh, Jamie Lee Curtis was three years older and had a shorter haircut, and mm. they she's not in the she's in the movie a bunch, but not a lot, and she had to wear a wig. Um, and so he's not stalking it, her in Halloween too. No, he is. She's oh. in the hospital after the events of the day before. What was she in the hospital night. for? Exhaustion? Uh, uh, shock. 
shock. She's in the hospital for shock. Okay. Well, it's even worse. The hospital has six people in it. Oh, you, you, okay, you'd, okay. You'd, you'd, you'd lose your mind on 20 different problems with the movie, but it's still scary. And it actually has a, I, I think it's a, I think it has a really satisfying end. Hmm. Um, and I, I'll do I'll they explain the how Michael Myers one. could be shot six times by Donald Pleasance and survive at point blank so, range. So this is where this is this is it doesn't take long for the franchise to go off the rails, but they <laughs> start to try to explain it in a couple of different ways, and you get all these different Celtic rune oh. uh, components. And, uh, okay, see now there that's already veering away from this. what's good about the first one, right? I mean, this is kind of like rock. This is kind of like Rambo movies, uh, where you know the first Rambo movie turns out to be this kind of uh, surreptitiously subversive Ted Kotcheff film about, you know, returning veterans and isn't this like, you know, Sylvester Stallone wearing, you know, a hundred caliber machine guns. Uh, that's what happens in subsequent Rocky films. But it sounds like what you're saying is that once we get out of Halloween one, some of the stuff that's really creepy and effective, which is that, you know, all, for all of the supernatural kind of he's everywhere thing, it's always believable in Halloween one that Michael Myers is where he is and is doing the things that he's doing. It sounds like they get away from that. If he's sort of presented in subsequent films as like some sort of, uh, well in that one in particular made in 1981, one year after Friday, the 13th came out. Mm -hmm. So it's cashing in on that. And then, you know, it turns into, you know, a monster movie Mm -hmm. franchise at Mm -hmm. that point. Mm -hmm. I mean, really the Terminator uh, borrows heavily from Halloween too. Mm. Uh, this relentless killing machine that can't be reasoned with. Yeah. Uh, how do you solve that problem, et cetera, et cetera? It's the natural forerunner to that. Uh, but but it has its own charms. I, I I love that movie for some reason. Not to the you know not to the art, the artistic sense that Carpenter brought to Halloween one, but uh, I. You'll have trouble dislodging me from that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know to the to the. Comedy part, I mean, we do have that kind of lame sheet ghost bit with the glasses of the dead guy in Halloween 1, which is sort of, I guess, the version of trick-or-treating that I was kind of asking for. But it kind of doesn't really work. It's not really where the film is on its firmest footing, which is which is much more in the uh, the kind of... It's Michael Myers. I mean, he's, he's front and center in, in Halloween 1. I had forgotten or never remembered that, and it was so jarring that in the opening scene uh you see the young michael myers in the in the in the clown outfit uh after he kills the first babysitter as a 6-year-old child it's so jarring in kind of the same way it's jarring to see uh Kyle Richards uh shot in <laughs> assault on, on precinct 13 yeah well, that's that's what john carpenter does he he has that card up his sleeve that that he will you know he's going to shock you at some point and probably pretty early to get yeah. you invested in the movie on its own terms mm. and then you know from a humor standpoint i like the ghost or the sheet scene i think i think it also uh lends a playfulness to michael myers that hadn't been on display yet and mm. so that you're dealing with somebody who's not just a shape and a moving shape and you know basically the male equivalent of the shark in jaws but uh, it's someone who's sort of um you know it's like the cat i, I don't like that i don't want i want michael myers to be cutesy I mean, I don't want him to have interests outside of like killing people. 
Then we're but veering. Just, I mean, you're, you're, you're so arguing for Halloween two at this point. I've, I've got to, I've got to have to taser oh, you. To, maybe I'm going to have to watch open like Clockwork Orange and uh, make you watch it. Maybe I don't know. I, I, you know, I can't be disappointed by it. Okay, let's talk about oh, one other thing. I want to mention about the filmmaking. Then I want to talk about the cast. Um, I didn't realize one of the key aspects to the to the ability to accomplish this film at the budget they did. Uh, is the use of the Panaglide camera system. Now, I don't want to get too in the weeds here for non-techie sort of equipment shop rental people listening to the pod, but I've always been a big fan of and am interested in the history of the Steadicam and the invention of it. And when I watched this, I was, you know, a couple, a few episodes ago, um, I had done a few Brian De Palma films and in Blowout, uh, there is such there's the use of of actual Steadicam, which is a homage to the opening of Halloween, right? Which is the sort of POV shot that uh, is looking through the window at the babysitters and uh, and and all of that sort of thing. Now, this is not a Steadicam that's used in Halloween, although it gets referenced as such so much in the way people say, you know, hand me a Kleenex or uh, other sort of brand names. It's the Panaglide system, which is another camera support system that allows you to do those long, what would have been uh, train tracked shots in the past in filmmaking. Um, the Panaglide system actually had to pay a royalty to the inventor of the Steadicam in order to use this filmmaking technology, but that's really what allows so much of Halloween to have a certain aspect, which maybe was newer at the time. Um, although you do have a lot of Steadicam and carry, which as you mentioned, came out a couple years earlier, but it does allow Carpenter to do a lot of business without having to do a lot of setups with the crew and with the lighting. And so that, that does lend <laughs> an element yeah, to he it. Was he was desperate to do that because I think he tried to do that stuff in Assault yeah. of Precinct 13 uh, of Precinct 13 mm -hmm. and he didn't he didn't have the money for it and and he knew he knew what he was going for there and and it, and it it's 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 one of the most iconic mm -hmm. I hate using that word I should retract <laughs> that but it's just one of those scenes that just makes the whole movie and frankly makes the genre now mm -hmm. and it it directly informs a guy like Sam Raimi who uh, started pioneering his own camera work in Evil Dead One and Evil Dead mm -hmm. Two, along those same tokens, uh, mm -hmm. and it, it just it fires up the imagination. How do I, how do I follow the killer? How do I go around the tree? How do I do all this and that? And the the traditional setup shots, etc., just made it real difficult. And when you're when you're doing it on a budget uh, and a low one at that, um, and and making that your opening salvo that you fire at the audience mm -hmm. just a really good choice I, yeah. uh, and and it's those choices i think you and i appreciate yes. when they make them and they work it's just there's something extra pleasing about it now let's talk about the cast um originally he wanted annie lockhart who again the full cast and crew cinematic universe we discussed annie lockhart at detail in my episode with Rick Brown about Battlestar Galactica, because she played Sheba on Battlestar Galactica, that was the actor who John Carpenter really wanted to uh, play the Jamie Lee Curtis role. And when she was not available or didn't want to do it, I believe it was either Deborah Carpenter or 
Erwin Yablons, who suggested Jamie Lee Curtis, who, of course, has pedigree, being that she's the daughter of Janet Lee, who is in Hitchcock's The Birds, which is an antecedent to this film itself. So this was Jamie Lee. Psycho. Uh, uh, Psycho, sorry. That was, the other, yes. that, that was the key. It was just like, wait a minute, I've never heard of her. I've never really seen her in anything. She's Janet Lee's daughter. I, yes. I, I just got... I just got ten thousand dollars worth of advertising just because of that. <laughs> exactly. So it was her first film, uh, which is a pretty good way to introduce yourself to the industry. Um, and I think she does a good job. I don't think anyone's acting is really praiseworthy here. I mean, it's genre acting. Let me say that. Um, Donald Pleasance is doing his Donald Pleasance thing. We'll talk about him when we get there. But Jamie Lee Curtis is, if there's a heart and soul of the film, it's her. And it's her outsiderness that I think I plug into, and it sounds like Roger Ebert plugged into as well. Um, we care about her. It's her sort of unique personality that grounds the film, and it's the fact that she's in peril uh, that we that causes us to care. So I think she does a great job. Yeah, um, I, 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 and I go back to Nancy Loomis who plays Annie Brackett. I, I think I would, I, I agree that uh, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is, is the right star, the right person for that final girl role. But I, I think Nancy Loomis is the soul of the movie. Really? I, 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 I find her as, as, as the part that I care about and that her personality is, is a notch or two higher up. You know, I mean, it's, it's a caricature like, any horror movie is, hmm. but for some reason, you know, she's the cop's daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's sort of the ringleader of the team. She has that great speed kills line as <laughs> Michael Myers is driving around the neighborhood <laughs> stalking. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, there's something about, about her performance that I think just from the supporting cast component really just elevates it. Uh, and, and is a great underpinning for everybody else. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't really, I wasn't that moved by her. Um, but yeah, I guess I could see what you're saying. Um, I just saw her in something else too, but I can't remember what it was. Uh, maybe it's just watching other things on this. Well, she's also in Assault on Precinct 13. I guess maybe that's where I saw her. Yep. And she's also, I think she's in, uh, she's in The Fog. I she's think, in The Fog. She's is... also in Halloween 2 and Halloween 3. Um, and 3, she's, yeah, she's, uh, uh, she's the, yeah, she's okay. She didn't really didn't really do much for me, but um, PJ Souls, of course, we've talked about on the pod before. I mean, she had a run here where from Carrie through Halloween, Breaking Away, Rock and Roll High School, Private Benjamin, Stripes. Like, there's a four or five or six year period where PJ Souls on television and films is sort of the representative of a certain type of girl or teenager or young adult. Uh, in American pop culture, in films and TV shows of the time. And she's always such a specific thing who, to me, really reads this era um, and I think lends herself perfectly well to the events that transpire uh, in Halloween. So I, I, I was, I'm always pleased to see her in a period film, and I think she did a great job here, just like she does not Carrie. Well, she, she gets... She gets hurt by the screenplay because she, if she doesn't put you off adverbs in general, <laughs> she she will make you not say the word totally ever again because she says it about fifty times in the movie. But uh, uh, I, I think she's terrific in it. Um, just 
great casting and yeah. as you said sort of a great example of someone from that from that era okay now we have to talk about donald pleasance who to me is absolutely essential i think the two most essential okay let's say the three most essential actors in the film are jamie lee curtis the character of michael myers portrayed though he is through a variety of different people and donald pleasance those are those three characters are absolutely essential to the proceedings there's some great stories about his casting i want to play a little more i want to play a little excerpt here my first choice was peter cushing Peter Cushing was John Carpenter talking. Famous British actor. I just loved him since I was a kid. And this was in 1978. In 77, Peter Cushing was in Star Wars. So we called his agent and made an offer, and he would, ha, he would never deem to be in your little low budget film. Christopher Lee also declined to do the role. It was funny, years later, we ran That's into Deborah Christopher Hill. Lee at a party, and he said, That is the biggest mistake I ever made of my career is to not be in this movie. Just to point one thing out, uh, Peter Cushing, I think, denied that that was true, uh, that he that he said he would never be in your little low budget movie. Uh, I think he just says he never he, he ever need, he, he he may have never even gotten the offer as frequently happens in the business where you're dealing with people's managers or agents who pass on things. Uh, and don't even bring your offer forward. So that's just a little sidebar. It was I who said, have you ever seen Donald Pleasance? And I remember Donald Pleasance playing a bit of a loony in a picture called Will Penny, and, and a few others, as a matter of fact. And I knew he was a versatile actor. I didn't think we could get him. But I said, wouldn't he give us a touch of class? I was a huge fan of Donald. Have been, again, since I was a kid. So we hired Donald Pleasance, and we gave him an additional $20,000. So that he total on the film was $320,000. By the way, that voice that you just heard, that gravel-inflected voice, uh, that's Joe Wolf, Right. Who is, who's, the, who's one of the producers of the film. He's just got one of the great film producer voices of all time. Donald accepted the part. My most frightening moment as a director was the first time I had to go meet Donald. Years later, I became very close with, with Donald. He became a very dear, dear, dear friend. But at the time, I was scared to death of him. So he said, I don't know why I'm doing this film. I don't know what my character is all about. The only reason I'm here is because my daughter, who's a rock and roll uh, guitar player, thought that the music you did in Assault and Precinct 13 was good, so I don't know what I'm doing. There are parts of the script which I'm now doing for John, which I can't accept. But I have to bring myself around to seeing it in his way because it's his film. I realized that he was just testing me. I think it's a little melodramatic, and certainly in my role. Now, I love the idea of Donald Pleasance calling anything melodramatic. I mean, if anyone specialized in over-the-top melodrama, it would be Donald Pleasance. Um, this little bit goes on in a great way where they all talk about what a great presence he was on the set and how... Once he was there, he was there. So he shows up and there's at least 20-somethings. You know, they're just kids. And it's a $300,000 movie. And Donald Pleasance has been in a lot of films and a lot of TV shows at this point in his career. And it's one of the great things about kind of why the lifestyle or the career of acting or filmmaking can be so seductive. Because you get the sense that, sure, it's a... Again, before this ever comes out, it's a it's one week of work for Donald Pleasance for forty thousand dollars on an extremely low budget genre horror film, which nobody expects to be anything. This is not a studio picture, and 
Yet while he's there on the set, he is completely, he's fully present. He's, he's asking the questions he would ask as an actor, whether he's doing Shakespeare or whether he's doing this. And he's engaged with the cast and the crew fully. And you get the sense from the anecdotes in this behind the scenes production piece that that's part of the, the, the joy and the thrill of this whole business is at its best uh, you get to drop in on these little worlds and be a part of these little families. And man, he contributes such an essential component to oh, yeah. these films. I mean, you can't imagine it without him. And it is his melodrama and his over-the-topness, uh, which is relatively tamped down for Donald Pleasance, although he certainly has uh, his moments. Here's one of them. We have to play a little of him in the film. I told him how dangerous you he was. You couldn't have two roadblocks and an all-points bulletin wouldn't stop a five-year-old. Well, he was your patient, doctor. If precautions weren't strong enough, you should have told somebody. I told everybody! Nobody listened. There's nothing else I can do. You can get back in there and get back on that telephone, tell him exactly who walked out of here last night, and tell him exactly where he's going. Probably going. I'm wasting my time. Huh? Sam Haddonfield is 150 miles away from here now. Now, for God's sakes, he can't drive a car. He was doing very well last night. Maybe someone around here gave him lessons. That's <laughs> I mean, just, that is one shot on the Panaglide following these two guys out of the hospital steps to Donald Pleasance's car. It's an amazing scene. He's pitching his dialogue up. He's down. He's angry. He's quiet. I mean, it's Donald Pleasance 101, and the film wouldn't really work without him. It just between sort of the age and the British accent and the overall gravitas, that that's just one of the little the little parts of the stew of this that that helps drive it forward. It wouldn't have worked with an American actor, no. I don't think. No, uh, and I don't even think Peter Cushing or Christopher Lee were mm -mm. the right thing too. They would have been too stately, too aristocratic, too something, too mm. thin maybe uh, <laughs> for it to work. Whereas you have you know this this True. Uh, this this turtle of a man uh who has this deep understanding and this gravitas uh chasing after chasing after michael myers it's it's a it's a winning combination well it's his man his manicness his the, the fact that he's kind of crazy too is lends something to it that's such an interesting choice right like he's kind of crazy himself and he's kind of off-putting to everyone that he encounters uh like the cop doesn't really know what to make of him um, he's frequently shouting. Um, he's such a strange and amazing presence, as he always is. I mean, as you know, people who follow the pod, the Columbo Cinematic Universe, uh, Donald Pleasance is one of the charter members. He appeared in the most over-the-top Columbo episode, A Port in Any Storm, which is saying a lot in terms of scenery-chewing Columbo villains. Uh, there is no equal, there's no parallel to Donald Pleasance in that episode. He is he is toweringly, howlingly over the top in a brilliant way. Um, I, I it, it, the movie doesn't work without him. Yeah, he, he he's he's that important. And in the same way that when I was doing the Star Wars episode recently with Dan and Bruce, we talked a bit in that episode about how upon this rewatch of Star Wars, I was really struck by how important David Prowse, who physically embodied Vader. His voice was replaced, of course, with James Earl Jones. But the physicality of David Prowse's perform physical performance as Vader, just his gesticulating, his movement, is so important to the Vader character. It's half the, well, it's a third. The costume is a third. The physical embodiment in the costume is a third. 
and the James Earl Jones voiceover is a third. Similarly, uh, Nick Castle, who is credited in Halloween as The Shape, that's what they call Michael Myers, which is an interesting choice. He, too, is a really important embodiment of this character uh, and his physicality. And I would say maybe it's, I don't know if I could go, if I was going thirds, I would say it's a third of the mask and the jumpsuit, a third the physical embodiment underneath the mask and the jumpsuit, and a third the sort of breathing on the soundtrack, similar to Vader. Would you agree? I would. I'd also add on to it. Um, he's not big and bulky. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the, his, I wouldn't call him slight, but it, the thinner frame distinguishes him from sort of the evolution of mm. Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees and some of the other, mm-hmm. you know, uh, kill machines that yeah. come later on. I like the fact, even though he's strong, he's able to lift up, you know, a teenager mm-hmm. and stick a knife at him and hold it there. Uh, there's something about that, that, that uh, I don't know if realism is not mm. quite the right word, but it's just a, it's a, it's a subtle it's difference. It's scary. Yeah, it, yeah. it, it, it lends itself to having a, a for lack of a better word, sort of a humanity or a yeah. uh, a difference to it that just doesn't make it some robotic killing machine. And it also is fascinating that uh, I think you could easily say it's one of Michael Myers is one of the more is an iconic character in film history, like transcendent of the genre. Right? If you were naming the fifty most iconic sort of film film, I don't know. It's not a role per se, but it's a character, let's say, uh, you know, you might, you'd, you'd say James Bond, uh, you might say Darth Vader, things of this nature. You'd have to put Michael Myers up there uh, because he is a pop cultural phenomenon. And it's kind of fascinating that aside from what we see of the six-year-old murderous Michael Myers, we don't know anything in this film about why he is the way he is, other than what Donald Pleasance tells us which is that in the 15 years that have transpired from the opening scene where he kills his babysitter to his return to Haddonfield, that Donald Pleasance saw nothing behind the eyes, that he's just pure evil. Like, But we don't know why. I'm sure you're going to tell me they probably spin plenty of theories about this in subsequent films, but I kind of like the fact that we don't know anything about him really in this film. The genius of Carpenter, and, and this is a genius choice to me, in, in this movie, it stops immediately in the next ones going mm. forward, is the fact that he embodies with no lines and really mm-hmm. only subtle gestures. You have the famous head tilt. Uh, <laughs> right. You have the, the, go, the sheet. Um, you have the strength. You have the being, being able to take a knife to the chest and six bullets, <laughs> but you can't quite call him supernatural mm-hmm. in in the movie right so you can you can superimpose your own mm-hmm. concept of invincibility or humanity onto him uh as you want and that's why that's why he called him the shape in the credits was that he, i think he wanted the mm. you know michael he's michael myers in the movie but the shape in the credits and the whole point of having him distant in film and having mm. different movements, having the weird head cocks, et cetera, was so that there was just enough personality, just enough drive, just enough mm-hmm. invincibility without making him some sort of godless killing machine, which yeah. he is. But but it allowed the audience member 
to superimpose their own components onto that and you could make him invincible you could make him supernatural Mm -hmm. you could make him super smart you could make him Mm -hmm. super dumb Mm -hmm. you could make him childlike whatever and uh it's sort of pulling the audience member into the into the story making process in an extremely Mm -hmm. subtle way that's that in many ways if i were to really sort of dive into what makes this movie so smart and good that's that Mm -hmm. that set of choices I don't know how intentional it was. I bet it was because John Carpenter's a smart guy. Yeah. Um, but that that really is sort of the that 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 marker of genius on this movie is that particular choice. I think you're totally right. Two other genius markers for me. One in the beginning of the film, uh, along lines of what you're saying, the head cock uh, when he stabs the guy into the kitchen cabinet. The other one is uh, as young Michael Myers when he is going to stab the babysitter, he looks at the knife. Uh, The camera pivots to the knife that he's holding. And it's such a specific choice, which on the one hand serves the purpose of showing us the weapon that he's about to use to kill the babysitter. But we've seen that because he's POV has walked up the stairs. By the way, the body and the hand holding the knife in that shot is Deborah Hill, uh, not the little boy that you see unmasked at the end of this scene, which is the other genius portion of it. But I think the way he looks up at the knife is a similar, is the only other charactery moment that you get in addition to that headcock when he's examining the guy that he killed. And then the other genius thing to me, and actually I think goes a little bit to what I was maybe saying about we don't really know much about the Michael Myers character, but maybe this is a bit of a clue. At the end of that amazing shot where he's unmasked and he's standing there and his parents have arrived from the event, uh, you see the father expressing concern and they don't quite know what's happened because, of course, they don't know that the babysitter has been killed. He is holding a bloody knife, but, you know, it's Halloween and uh, maybe there's some explanation. But the genius touch to me is the mother just puts her hands in her pockets and it's such a gesture of a lack of concern in a way that again, if that's a conscious choice, I think it's such a great small little touch that maybe tells us a little something about the character. Um, That was a genius little moment too, but I think you're right that the less is more when it comes to this character. Uh, And I suppose we should talk about the famous, uh, William Shatner mask as part of this too, which ties yeah, also I, into I, the, I, the, I the cinematic say, It's been it's been dealt with so it's been often. Dealt with so often. Uh, it's 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 borderline. Uh, it's almost rhetorical at this point. But yeah, they they found the William Shatner mask <laughs> and uh, painted it white, and and it worked. And, and cut out the eye holes. So, cut out the eye holes. And so the strange part is that in subsequent sequels, I, I like Halloween 2's mask, but then beyond that four, five, six, and beyond. They, they get the mask wrong so consistently <laughs> and they have infinite money. They have mm. infinite whatever to get it right and it, it doesn't work. How do you get it wrong? Uh, I mean, come on. It's, oh, God. Uh, isn't that yeah, the whole yeah, character? Now, now I'm tricking you into seeing <laughs> Halloween 4, 5, and 6. You could be like, what? Whoa, whoa, what's going on here? They get it really wrong and and it it, it wrecks Halloween 4. That's so funny. You, and uh, <laughs> it's it, that... Well, do you don't think let that, anybody tell you that costume design isn't important? Well, do, listen, maybe there was, you know, maybe Shatner sued or something. I mean, you don't know. It could be, it could be some story. I mean, the fact that it didn't look at all like William Shatner is such a great part of the story of finding this mask. Cause I think they did try 
a couple of other things. It was intentional in the sense that I think they tried like they had like a clown mask, which was sort of one kind of a choice, um, which is kind of ironic because I think in the moment right now, everyone's freaking out about this clown movie that's out. Um, that's Terrifier 2. Terrifier 2. It's getting a tremendous amount of buzz. And I just saw I just saw that uh, another studio greenlit another scary clown movie. I was like, oh, here goes Hollywood. Let's make 30 scary clown movies, just like we're going to have 30 iterations of the uh, knives out, you know, star studded cast thing. Uh, they just had one of those that flopped with De Niro and, um, and all of those people. So, uh, but the finding of the mask, the fact that it was a cheap kind of supposedly Star Trek mask and didn't look at all really like William Shatner, that they cut the eyes out a bit and spray painted it white. I mean, it's one of those things that's iconic now, but is such a strange choice at the time that you could imagine people just going like, what, how is this going to work? And of course it lends itself so well to Dean Cundy's lighting and his ability to just bring up the exposure in certain frames. So you can see Michael Myers uh, mask looming in closets and other dark corners where he wasn't a moment ago. It's just such a brilliant and creepy aspect of why this whole thing works. I'm sure it's been discussed ad nauseum by everybody involved with it. But if I had an interview question with John Carpenter, I would, I would dig really deep into that and say, (laughs) you know, what, what were you thinking? How did you arrive at this? Did you just give up where, you know, because I, it, it, you know, it's, 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 it, it launched a billion plus dollar franchise. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it shot him to movie immortality. Uh, you know, is this like the, you know, Motley crew deciding to put umlauts over the vowels in their name because they were drinking Lowenbrow at the time, mm-hmm. or was there something more conscious? And then they started fooling around with it. And then the skill that he had around the filmmaking and then around the storytelling aspect, then, then it grew on him, that type of thing. Well, Fraser, I, that's what I suspect happened. Listen, lucky for you, you're here on the full cast of group podcast and I can play you this little moment, uh, which talks exactly about what you're asking about. Let's see what John Carpenter et al. have to say here about the mask. John sent me out to find the perfect mask or to create the perfect mask for the movie. And it was simply to be a kind of a blank face. We didn't have any money to make a mask. It was originally written the way you see it. In other words, you, it, it's a pale mask with human features, almost featureless. I don't know why we, I wrote that down, why Deborah and I decided on that. Maybe it was because of an old movie called Eyes Without a Face. It's a French film, Franju made it. And this girl had a burned face, so she wore this face mask. It was real creepy because it was featureless and immobile except for her eyes. So Tommy Lee Wallace, the production designer, ran up to the mask shop on Hollywood Boulevard and bought a couple. One was a clown mask, and that's, you know, one way to go. And the other, he got this William Shatner uh, Star Trek mask, (laughs) Captain Kirk. Because in mask form, the William Shatner mask was just a kind of a blank face. It didn't really look like anybody. And he cut the eye holes out a little bit bigger so they weren't like this, they were rounder. Tore off the eyebrows. I kind of poofed up the hair a little so it looked demented and strange. And I spray painted it whiter than it already was. I mean, there's really nothing more to it than that. And, and uh, asked and answered. And that just, <laughs> that just gives you the perfect 
it just worked. I mean, if they hadn't have found that mask, I, I wonder what they would have done. You know, I don't think it would have worked as well as it does because that is the character, right? Yeah. Oh, I, you know, imagine <laughs> if they, they picked out a Spock mask oh, with mean, pointy ears terrible. or something like be, that. And it, just, it would have just, it, it, it would have stopped the movie dead in its tracks. Um, yeah. It's, it's again, another unbelievable choice. This one, it sounds like was, you know, born by accident as much as anything else, but sometimes yeah. serendipity counts for these things. Well, I mean, listen, all of these things together, it's such an interesting, I'm, I'm so fascinated by, films like this, which start from really nothing and really have no expectations. And it's such an interesting question to consider, much like Star Wars, which no one at the time thought was going to be anything at all and was similarly, quote unquote, low budget, comparatively speaking. And it becomes this thing. And what's interesting in film history is once it becomes a thing, it's almost not impossible, but very, very difficult to get to the origin story of a thing like Star Wars because so many layers of who did what and so many, even even with George Lucas himself, he tells stories now that have nothing to do with really what he was doing and thinking at the time. And one of the advantages of a film like Halloween is it's not laden with quite the multi-billion dollar franchise weight of something like Star Wars, or culturally it doesn't have the same weight. But in that way, these people are all talking about it very matter-of-factly, and it has the ring of truth when they tell us the origin stories. And so I think I have more affection for a film like Halloween, that it spawns this massive industry, which people continue to feed on and feed off of, uh, because it has such humble origins and it doesn't have pretense about it. And it didn't set out really to do anything other than scare the hell out of us. And that's what it did. And when it came out, um, it wasn't an immediate success. And Erwin Yablons says, you know, that he's waiting by the phone for the numbers to come in from, I think the theaters in like St. Louis or somewhere in Illinois where the film had opened um, you know, in the first night it did like $200. Now, of course, let's remember, this is like a movie cost $1.50 or something. So it did $200 the first night and then it dropped off. We said most films will drop off after a, f a few days. But then what happened was like two days later, all of a sudden, you know, it did $300. And then uh, five days later, it had doubled again. And it was word of mouth. People were saying, oh, you've got to go see this movie. And it was really that which caused this phenomenon for people to go and be scared shitless in the movie theater. So uh, I was it's impressed. A, it's, a, it's a cool phenomenon, too, because, you know, we talked a little bit about the, the horror environment from which it mm -hmm. was operating in. And it was you know, pretty arid in many ways. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it touched a nerve. I don't know. It may have even been a late 70s nerve where people just yeah. really were looking for an escape. Probably. And you combine that with... I'm not going to call Halloween the perfect movie, but the right movie with the right thing at the right mm -hmm. time and uh, equipped with a ton of skill behind it uh, on all sorts of levels. And it that's that's how you have a generationally impactful piece of art. Well, Frazier, you've been haranguing me about it for years. You finally brought me to <laughs> Halloween and I enjoyed it a lot more than I expected. I hesitate to wonder what this means for other things you're trying to goad me into watching. Maybe 
I will become more of a genre guy as we go forward. We'll have to see what some of your other recommendations will be, but I hope that we will do them on the podcast when the occasion merits. That would be great. I, I'm batting around 250 so far, so I'm not in the <laughs> Hall of Fame, but uh, uh, I will I will consider all sorts of rabbit holes for you to drop into. <laughs> okay, I appreciate that. Well, listen, thanks so much for coming on again. And I don't know if I'm going to watch Halloween too, but I might cast a curious eye towards maybe the first 15, 20 minutes. Let's say that. Awesome. Okay, buddy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Love doing it. All right. I'll talk to you soon.